This evening we're concluding our overview of the Old Testament book titled Esther. And with this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles now to Esther chapter 10. And as you make your way to the 10th chapter of Esther, well, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the historic record that we find here in this book, it includes events that occurred there in the Persian Empire during the 5th century B.C., As I pointed out back in the beginning of this book, these events took place during the days when Ezra the priest was preparing to lead a group of Jews back to the land of promise. And what this means then is that the majority of the Jews were still living there in the land of their captivity during the days when Esther was queen of Persia. And while it was God's plan to bring his chosen people back to the land of promise, We must not forget that the Lord doesn't move people around like chess pieces on a board. You know, I don't believe in this uh, determined fatalism where God is just, you know, moving us around and we have no free will and these sorts of things. No, uh, I believe that the Lord sovereignly orchestrates the circumstances which lead people to make decisions. And listen, those who will humbly seek his help, well, they receive the divine guidance that we need to make decisions that are actually in line with his perfect plan. Uh, This really is, in my opinion, uh, what the book of Esther is all about. As a matter of fact, it might even interest you to know that the book of Esther doesn't include one explicit reference to God, not one. Uh, There is no recorded miracle attributed to God in this book, nor do we find the angel of the Lord showing up to save the day and uh, we don't find God raining down fire and brimstone upon the enemies. No, he, he called the, uh, the Israelites to take a stand against the enemies. And, and, and as we consider how God is seemingly silent in this book, uh, it's also interesting to note that you know, the book of Esther is cent- centered around the courageous faith of this young Jewish woman who realized that she had been sovereignly placed you know, providentially into a position of power and for a greater purpose. And while it's true that there is no explicit mention of God throughout this book, I should remind you that Esther was a woman of faith who decided that she needed to fast for three days before approaching the king with her request concerning Haman. Not only that, but she also asked all of the Jews in Shushan to fast with her, to to fast with her for three days. And therefore, we know that they were humbly seeking the favor of the Lord as she waited for divine guidance from God. Now, with all of this in mind, it seems to me that this book uh, was actually written in such a way as to uh, remind us uh, that uh, uh, though our God is invisible, he's still very present. Though we can't just look and see our God standing here, He's still very present and, and, and ready to help us if we would simply seek his face. And, and while it's true that no one has seen God's face at any time, it's also true that those who come to him with the faith of a child, well, will soon discover that our invisible creator is not only the God who blessed the faith of Esther and Mordecai, uh, but he's also the Savior who's ready to, to reward those who will diligently seek him today. And listen, this is true regardless of what's happening in the world around us. You know, this is a truth that that no one can rob from us. The Lord is able to bless those who trust in him regardless of the corruption at the Capitol. And listen, the Lord is able to provide for us no matter the state of our economy. 
And even if our nation is controlled by communists who want to destroy our national constitution, uh, the book of Esther helps us to see that the Lord is still able to accomplish his will according to his providential plan. And with this as the focus, I want to consider the way in which the Lord you know, set out to accomplish his will during the days of Esther. And so if you would look with me here at Esther chapter 10, I want to begin reading there at verse 1. Here we read, And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. Now all the acts of his power and his might and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. Now, here in the final verses of this book, we, we learn about this day when the king of Persia imposed tribute on the land uh, uh, that he was uh, you know, the king of, and, and this stretched all the way to the islands of the sea. And In other words, King Azuris imposed this new tax on all of the people dwelling there within the Persian Empire. And as we've already considered, you know, the Persian Empire was extremely extensive at this point in time. Now, as we consider this uh, tribute or this increasing rate in taxation, well, the chances are this tribute was designed to offset the income that was now missing after the civil war that had just occurred on the 13th day of Adar. Remember, Israel rose up against their enemies and there was a bit of a civil war. And while we aren't told how many people died, I'm guessing that it impacted the economy there in the Persian Empire. And so in order to offset that missing money, well, the king decides that he's going to uh, increase the rate of taxation. At the same time, listen, you know, with the, the death of the enemies of Israel, there were fewer laborers working in the fields. And as a result, there was probably a supply shortage happening, which affected the cost of living. And as we consider the way that the battle between the Jews and their enemies resulted in ongoing economic hardships, well, I have no doubt that the Jews who were still living there in Shushan, uh, you know, as they considered the, the supply chain issues and as they considered the increasing taxation, they were probably starting to think, Israel's looking pretty good right now. You know, Israel, the land that had been left desolate for so long, was looking like a, like a good place to get away. Uh, this might explain why more than 42,000 Jews ended up following Ezra back to the land of their inheritance just 15 years later. Yeah, there was some people that who were finally on board with going back to Israel. And while, yeah, this is still within the Persian Empire, it's far enough away that they're really not under the thumb of the king. And if I understand this correctly, then it seems to me that the Lord allowed Satan to motivate Haman to rise up against the Jews while simultaneously placing Esther in a position of power that she becomes queen so that they could, uh, she could then turn, turn around and take a stand against the attacks of the enemy, thereby saving them from certain genocide. And after the civil war was said and done, the king then was forced to increase the taxes, which in turn convinced many of the Jews that it was time to return to the land of promise. Whew. All right. So that's how it seems to me. And in light of this, we can see how God was actually, you know, working in all of these things providentially so that a remnant might decide to make their way back to the land of promise. And listen, if anybody knows 4D chess, it's God. And he's working all of this out according to his perfect plan. The proof of my point 
Well, it can be found in Jeremiah chapter 29. It's beginning, beginning at verse 10 where the prophet Jeremiah declares, Thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. Incredible. And from this, we see how the Lord promised. He promised that after their captivity, that he would cause them to come back, that he would bring them back from their captivity. And I have no doubt that the Lord was using the economic situation there in Shushan to, to convince this remnant that it was time to return to the land of promise. In similar fashion, well, it seems to me that the King of Kings has been sovereignly working behind the scenes as he once again creates the conditions which convince the Jews who have been scattered throughout the world that it's time to return to Israel. I think that this is happening even as I speak. I'll remind you it was back in the first century when the Jews were dispersed once again into the Gentile world. The reason why? Well, it's because the majority of them had rejected their Redeemer. This was precisely the point that the Lord Jesus was presenting in Luke chapter 19. It's there where he declares, If you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another." Because you did not know the time of your visitation. In other words, the Lord Jesus was describing the days from at that point in time, not too far in the future, when Jerusalem would be leveled, and this includes the leveling of the, of the temple. And it was during those days, uh, there in the late first century, when the Israelites were dispersed into the Gentile nations, and for nearly two centuries, the, the, the land of promise uh, was controlled uh, by, uh, by by the Gentiles, and and we've seen since then uh, Gentiles coming in and fighting over the land and controlling the land and all these sorts of things, and that's been going on since the first century. But then came uh, you know a twentieth century Haman named Adolf Hitler, who used his political power to then start attacking the Jews. And when all was said and done, listen, the survivors of Hitler's Holocaust began to make their way back to Israel. And it was at that point in time when the Lord started to fulfill the prophecy presented through the prophet Isaiah. It's in Isaiah chapter 11 where Isaiah declares this. He says, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. 
Here in this prophecy, we learn about the way that the Lord would bring his people back into the land a second time. And that's exactly what's been happening since the days when Hitler tried to exterminate the Israelites. And listen, I get it. It's difficult for us to understand why the, uh, the, why the Lord allows Hamans and Hitlers to rise up against his people. And yet we must not fail to realize that he is sovereignly working all things together for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to his purposes. And listen, I believe that we're continuing to watch the Lord gathering the dispersed uh, you know, of Judah from the four corners of the, uh, of, of the earth, just as Isaiah promised. As a matter of fact, you know, Ezekiel actually uh, elaborates on this in Ezekiel chapter 37. There, the prophet declares, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Uh, they indeed say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Incredible. Here in this prophecy, we find the Lord promising to bring the nation of Israel back to life. Though they're dead bones, though they have no hope, though they were basically buried and left for dead, God has brought them back into the land of promise. And just as the Lord promised, you know, it was you know, back in the early 20th century when the miraculous resurrection of this nation began. It's also interesting to note that the number of Jews who are now moving to the land of promise, it's currently at a record high. As a matter of fact, it was just last year when Israel absorbed more than 60,000 new Jewish immigrants. This is close to a 130% increase when compared to 2021. And while 6% of those Jewish immigrants come from the United States, listen, 47% were from where? Russia. Where else? 25% from Ukraine. Yeah, you better believe that God is working in all these things. And in light of this data, it seems clear to me that God is still using wars. He's still using failing economies as a way of getting our attention so that we might humbly seek the divine guidance of God. And knowing that the church age is about to give way to the 70th week of Daniel, well, we'd all do well to follow in the footsteps of Esther as we humbly seek the help of our, of our almighty God so that we can make decisions that are actually in line with his will. At the same time, we must not fail to consider the way that Mordecai got involved in Persian politics there in his day and age. And with this as the focus, I want to take another look there at verse 2. Here we learn that all the acts of his power and his might, speaking of the king, uh, all the acts of his power and his might and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia? Now, here in this verse, we learn about the way that Esther's adoptive father ended up being advanced there within the Persian Empire. Uh, that word advanced, well, it's translated from a Hebrew word, which was used of those who are promoted to a position of power. And just to be clear, it was there in the beginning of verse 3 where we learn that Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus. That's right, Mordecai the Jew became the second most powerful man in the entire Persian Empire. And this promotion well, it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia. 
Uh, Now, you might be interested to know that this is actually the third time that these chronicles are mentioned here in this book. As a matter of fact, it was back in chapter 2. There we learned about the day when Mordecai exposed an assassination plot against the king. And it's at the end of chapter 2 where we learn that all of this was recorded in the book of the Chronicles, which was written in the presence of the king. Then in chapter 6, we find the king uh, experiencing a sleepless night, and he calls for one of his servants to read to him from the same chronicles. And it was at that point in time when the king was reminded about the way that Mordecai had saved his life. And that's how the Lord ended up turning the tables on Haman's evil plan. Well, now here we are in the final chapter of this book, and we learn about the way that Mordecai's promotion was also mentioned uh, there in the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia. And while this, you know, this record is mentioned in the Bible, it doesn't mean it's biblical. In other words, yeah, so we, we have the mention of the, this chronicle, the, these chronicles that were being kept there in Persia, but that doesn't mean these chronicles were inspired of the Holy Spirit, and, and, and therefore there's no reason to think that they should be included in the canon of Scripture. But listen, there are actually many biblical events that have been recorded in extra-biblical records. Just to name a few, well, Pharaoh Shishak's campaign into Israel, uh, we actually find this recorded in 1 Kings chapter 14, but not only that, we also find a record of this on the walls of the temple of Amun in Thebes, Egypt. Uh, there also the campaign of the Assyrian king Sennacherib uh, the, when he invaded Judah, this is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 18. But at the same time, the same record uh, uh, is actually found on one of the earliest cuneiform artifacts known as the Taylor Prism. The fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, was recorded in 2 Kings chapter 24. This was also recorded in the Babylonian Chronicles. And the decision of King Cyrus, by which the Israelites were set free from captivity, well, this was recorded in Ezra chapter 1, but it was also recorded on a barrel-shaped artifact called the Cyrus Cylinder. More importantly, we also find the historical confirmation of our Savior's death, burial, and resurrection. These can be found in the historical accounts of Josephus, Suetonius, Thallus, Pliny the Younger, Lucian, and in the Talmud. And as we consider all of these extra-biblical writings that support what we see in the Bible, this is, I'm only scratching the surface. I'm just scratching the surface of all the extra-biblical accounts that confirm our Bible. Therefore, there should be no doubt in our minds that that these extra-biblical sources provide us with even more proof that the Bible is constantly being corroborated by secular sources and by archaeology. And uh, this should give us great confidence that the biblical records are, in fact, accurate. I like the way that uh, the Apostle Peter put it in uh, in, in 2 Peter chapter 1. It's there where he writes this. He says, For we did not uh, follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, 
But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, as we consider what Peter's writing here, we must not fail to recognize that Peter is saying, hey, we didn't create fables. We didn't create fairy tales. The Bible isn't a book of fairy tales written by fiction writers who wanted to create fables around a campfire. I once said these are historical records written by faithful men who were writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And as a bonus, we find secular records that provide us with extra biblical evidence that these things actually took place. Now, with all this in mind, I want to consider the way that Mordecai made an impact on the world by getting involved with Persian politics. And so if you would, look with me again here at Esther chapter 10. I want to focus your attention there at the final verse of this book. It's verse 3 where we learn that Mordecai the Jew was second to King Azurus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. Now, here in the final verse of this chapter, we learned about the way that Mordecai ended up getting involved uh, with Persian politics. And as we consider the way that King Ahasuerus appointed Mordecai to serve as his second, we do well to remember what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 13. It's verse 1. There we learn that there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. In other words, listen, it was the Lord's plan for Mordecai to occupy that position of power. And in the same way, it was the Lord's plan for Esther to become the queen of Persia. In this way, the Lord was using these people of faith to make an impact on the politics there in the Persian Empire. And we see that there in the middle of verse 3, where we learn that Mordecai was seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. He was there working in, in, in the government for the good of the people of God there living in the land of Persia. Uh, And as we consider the way that Mordecai was getting involved in Persian politics, we should also uh, consider a few more examples of the same truth. You see, the the same was true for Israel's son, Joseph, who, you know, after being sold by his brothers into slavery, you know, like brothers do, you know, he ends up becoming the right-hand man of Pharaoh. So from being sold into slavery to becoming the second most powerful man in Egypt, how incredible is that? It's in Genesis chapter 41 where Moses describes the day when Pharaoh said to Joseph, inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. So yeah, Joseph got to walk around with some bling on. But, you know, as we consider Israel's son Joseph, you know, he became the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, and then Joseph used that position to secure, you know, a a better life for all of his brothers. And in similar fashion, listen, it was during the days of the Babylonian captivity when the Lord raised up the prophet Daniel and placed Daniel uh, in the courts of King Nebuchadnezzar. 
As a matter of fact, it's in Daniel chapter 2 where we learn about the day when the king said to Daniel, truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also, Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel sat in the gate of the king. From this, we can see how the Lord empowered the prophet Daniel so that the king of Babylon might make him the ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and so that he might become the chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. And then Daniel turned around and brought his three buddies along, you know, so that they could help to, to you know, bring moral correctness and, and you know, just God's will uh, to this nation. That's exactly what happened. The, the king appointed Daniel to be, to, to be the second most powerful, uh, you know, ruler uh, in the Babylonian empire. And, and so we see again how, you know, God raises up his people to take part in uh, the government. Uh, and, and then there was Nehemiah, who I'll remind you was the cupbearer of the Persian king Artaxerxes. And while it's true that the position of a cupbearer was far from being the second most powerful you know, position in Persia, this was still a position of great political influence. The reason why? Well, it's because the cupbearer was always the man that the king trusted the most. And it's there in the book of Nehemiah where we find Nehemiah, he's influencing, influencing the king of Persia as he serves him as cupbearer. And, and, and in each of these examples, you know, we can see how the Lord raised up a person of faith to occupy a position of influence over the political leaders of a Gentile kingdom so that they could help to you know, establish biblical morality within these nations. And in light of these examples, you know, we would all do well to realize that the God we serve doesn't believe in the complete separation of church and state. He just doesn't. And, you know, there's a, a whole lot of people here in America who think that, the, you know, separation of church and state is some sort of, you know, constitutional truth or, or some foundational aspect of our nation, and it's not. The separation of church and state isn't found in the Declaration of Independence, and it's not, it's not found in our Constitution, it's not found in our founding documents. The separation of church and state uh, was, you know, just mentioned in a letter about, you know, hey, the, the, the government's not going to come along and make everybody become an Anglican, or the government's not going to come along and make everybody become a Catholic, or that's all it, the, the, the statement means. It certainly wasn't intended by our founding fathers to say anybody that has a faith in Jesus Christ should stay out of government. And yet that's how it's being used here in the 21st century. When people call, you know, invoke separation of church and state, what they really mean is keep your church out of our government. But they have no problem with the government coming into our church. Just look back to the lockdowns when they want to shut down every, every church door. Well, wait a minute, I thought you wanted the separation of church and state. Well, yeah, as long as it's a one-way street, right? As long as it means the church stays out of the government, then we like it. But the government should be able to tell the church what to do, right? Well, which way do you want it? Do you want separation of church and state or not? Listen, I'm personally opposed to the separation of church and state. Not in the original sense. I don't think the government should tell us which church to go to, unless they're telling you to go to Calvary Chapel, of course. You know, but but no, seriously, you know, I, I, I'm completely opposed to the government telling people where to go to church. And yet when you go back and you look at the faith of our founding fathers, they were constantly looking to the scriptures 
as the, the standard of our national morality. If you look at our judicial system, if you look at you know, the initial laws that were established, if you look at any of that, it was all coming from the scriptures. And so listen, the God we serve does not believe in the separation of church and state. And further proof of my point, this can be seen in the way that the kings of Israel were expected to be accountable to the priests and the prophets. We find, I, I, you know, time would fail me to go through all the accounts where one of the kings of Israel is being challenged by a priest or being challenged by a prophet, and yet it, it was the king's responsibility to listen to the priest or the prophet that is coming to tell them what to do scripturally. So we see civil government, but we also see uh, church-based government, and, and both are important for uh, a nation to be a, a, you know, a, a place where biblical morality reigns supreme. And so we see the kings of Israel, they were expected to be accountable to the priests and the prophets. And in this way, we see how civil leaders need spiritual leaders to keep them on course with the will of God. Therefore, you know, those who attempt to expel Christians from the political system here in America, they're simultaneously attempting to dismiss biblical morality from the political arena. And guess what those people want to do? Those same people want to introduce another kind of morality. They, they want to introduce something that they've considered to be moral, though it's not biblical morality. So, so, you know, the Christian who's convinced that, well, it's not my place to tell other people how they ought to live and use the government as a, as, as a form to, you know, enforce Christian morality. Well, listen, all laws are moral at the, co- at the core. Every single law that gets passed is moral at the core. And so whose standard of morality do you want that to be based on? A biblical standard of morality or someone else's standard of morality? How's it working so far? this separation of church and state? Are we becoming a more moral nation? Are are things getting better the further we get away from the church? Or are things getting worse? Well, let's consider a Gallup poll from last year. As Gallup considered the state of our nation, according to this poll from last year, there's a record high 50% of Americans who, who tell us that the overall state of our nation, the, the, moral, the moral values here in the U.S. are now poor. 50% think that the moral values of the U.S. are poor. This is the highest number uh, that has ever answered the question in this way. Another 37% say it's only fair, but listen, a mere 1% think the state of, of our morals here in, in the U.S. is excellent. 1%. And, and I'm, I'm thinking this was error. One <laughs> percent error. I, I can I think we can allow for that. But listen, it, it, you know, fifty percent of Americans would rate the overall state of moral values here in the U.S. as being poor. And, and I think that these people know what they're talking about because I would agree. The, 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 the moral excellence that, that we once enjoyed here in our nation, which is not to say that our nation has always done everything right. Of course not. But morality is just declining more and more. And, and we see this in the rates of violent crimes that continue to increase. We see this in the sexual immorality that continues to be celebrated. And all these sorts of things just go to show that the further we embrace separation of church and state, the further we push Christians out of, out of the government, the less moral our nation is. 
In light of all of this, there's no doubt in my mind that the degradation of our nation is directly related to the reality that so many of our political leaders on both sides of the aisle want nothing to do with Christian leaders who will take a stand for biblical morality. The, the actual number of political leaders in our country who really embrace a Christian worldview, it's such a small percent that it barely even matters. And what this means is that the so-called separation of church and state, it's leading us away from the moral laws upon which this nation was established. That being the case, it's important for us to understand that the Lord never called us Christian to maintain separation of church and state. The, the, the Lord never said, okay, Christian, don't impose biblical morality on the nation in which you live. You, know, you won't find that verse in the Bible. No, instead, the psalmist assured us of this by declaring, he says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Pretty simple. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The nation that will seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness will be blessed. What do you think? Is America being blessed right now? Would you say that America is receiving all the blessings of the Lord right now? Because I don't think so. I don't think that we are. So then what does that say about the God we serve? It seems to me that our nation is serving the wrong God who's introducing the wrong morals, and as a result, the blessings of God are going bye-bye. With that being the case, we ought to make it our aim to shine the light of the Lord everywhere we can. We ought to be preaching the gospel to anyone who will listen and those who won't. And yeah, I think this includes the political arena here in our nation. There are a lot of Christians who are opposed to you know Christians putting their hands on, on politics, and I'm not one of those Christians. I, I fully believe that we ought to be voting and that we ought to be voting biblically for Christian leaders. And I, I am fully on board with Christians going and if, if the Lord leads to get involved in the political process. Just look at Nehemiah. Look at Daniel. You know, look, look at these, these men and women throughout the scriptures. Look at Mordecai. Look at Esther. God placed them into positions of power for the good of the people. Would it be to God that more and more Christians, Christians who truly bow a knee to Jesus, would get involved in the political process here in America so that they might help to bring the blessings of the Lord back to America? Rather than leaving the political arena to unbelievers who will always lead our nation on the broad road that leads to destruction, let's pray for leaders like Mordecai and Esther, leaders who will humbly seek the Lord so that we might once again become a nation. That's receiving the blessings of our God. Let's pray.